0: This is amazing. Like, honestly, I have had the best last few days. Never been to
1: Sydney. Thanks for turning it up, New South Wales. Love it. Being a pharmacy assistant has, it wasn't actually a profession that I chose. It chose me. Been doing it for 19 years now. I absolutely love it. It's stressful, it's challenging, but you know what? If you're good at what you do, you're never gonna hate your job. And if you're not having fun, you're doing it wrong. Keep it up, guys. We are the backbone of the industry and there is so much more to come. Welcome to the Pharmacy Business and Career Network podcast, brought to you by the Pharmacy Guild of Australia, focusing on pharmacy management and ownership. The PBCN podcast supports the improvement and growth of your business performance with insights and advice from a range of industry professionals. The PBCN podcast, supporting your journey every step of the way.
2: The voice you heard at the start was Colby Deep, winner of this year's Pharmacy Assistant of the Year award, as she claimed her prize at this year's Pharmacy Assistant National Conference. And we shared that with you today as a little bit of a taster of the full interview with her, which covers her journey to this point and what continues to bring her passion in her role at Craig Nish Pharmacy at Harvey Bay in Queensland. So tune into our next episode for the full conversation with Colby. But for today, we return to a panel of Australian and international pharmacists, some of whom are trained as prescribing pharmacists who spoke at the APP conference in March 2023. This panel took a deep dive into experiences of prescribing pharmacists in the UK, discussing how pharmacists need to prepare, how new programs will actually be rolled out and how full scope will assist patients. The conversation was facilitated by Koz Sklavos, AM, and panellist Sarah Kemp, Senior Manager, Full Scope Project Queensland at the Pharmacy Guild of Australia, Johnson Lee, Chief Pharmacist, New South Wales, at the Pharmacy Guild of Australia, Zoe Gertis, Practice Policy and Regulations Director at the Pharmacy Guild of Australia, Mark Burden, UK Pharmacist and Secretary General at the World Pharmacy Council, and Oliver Williams, a UK Pharmacist. Here's the panel.
3: So today's session is sponsored by the Pharmacy Guild of Australia and the title is Full Scope in Action, What It Means for Your Business. It's a panel session, as you can see, and it's going to be facilitated by Cos Glavos, um, who needs no introduction, but in one... In one line, he's APP Chairman and past National President of the Pharmacy Guild of Australia, amongst many other things. So I'll introduce you to our panelists. Um, starting on the far left is uh, Mark Burden, UK pharmacist and Secretary General of the World Pharmacy Council, also known as Elvis, um, if you were here a few years ago. That's, that's really how I remember remember Mark from APP a few years ago. Um, and I, I really love that our panel is um, is mostly uh, prescribing pharmacists. So um, really look forward to in a few years time when the same thing is our audience when we're mostly prescribing pharmacists. So, um, so that's Mark on the end. Next to him is Ollie, Oliver Williams. He's a UK pharmacist and he's over in Australia because he's the current recipient of the World Pharmacy Council's Young Pharmacist Global Exchange Scholarship. What a mouthful. So um, I'm looking forward to hear what Ollie has to say about practice in the UK. Um, next we have Zoe Gertis who's Practice Policy and Regulations Director for the Pharmacy Guild of Australia. She's also a, a prescribing pharmacist um, from her time in the UK in, since 2006. Next we have Sarah. If you've been to other Scope of Practice sessions, I think Sarah is no stranger to us now. Um, As you can probably tell by her accent, she is from Canada and she's also a prescribing pharmacist with 25 years experience in community pharmacy. And um, last but not least is is Johnson Lee from the Pharmacy Guild of Australia, New South Wales branch, who is looking forward to being a prescribing pharmacist, um, and he is the chief pharmacist at the New South Wales branch. Um, please welcome them, and um, I'll hand over to
0: Cos. Thanks, everyone. We'll get started because I know it's a jam-packed program. As I said there, for those who've come in late, we've really, the next two sessions uh, complement each other. So if our colleagues can grab a mic each, we're going to spread the three microphones. Mark, I'm going to set up your first slide. And if you could walk us through, I've just asked our special panelists to say some opening remarks and we'll jump straight into some more in-depth details about prescribing. So welcome. Let's give them another UK, Newton, a beautiful Queensland welcome.
4: Thanks Coles. I will give a collective thanks from the panel to Coles for organising this and for that lovely welcome uh, from Amanda. Look, I'm not going to talk for ages here. I could talk for hours about this subject, as all of us could. Uh, I'm just going to say a few words about clinical governance. Uh, It's a a term that many of you may know or may not know, may find incredibly boring or, or whatever, but it is essential that you know what clinical governance is. So doing all of this scope of practice and all of this innovative stuff is all very well, but you've got to back it up with, some uh framework and some governance in case something goes wrong. So the first thing is you minimize the risk of something going wrong. Secondly, if it does go wrong, you've got a mechanism for dealing with it. So I've printed out uh some notes that went along this slide. This from our regulator, it's been stuffed in my pocket all day, so it's a bit crumbly, but uh what they've said, the regulator has said around uh pharmacy services, inspectors have identified situations where pharmacy teams provide inadequate risk assessments, consultation documentation, patient medication records, clinical audit, and staff training with respect to community pharmacy clinical services. Now we've got quite a range of clinical services and we still haven't got it right. You know, there's a hell of a long way to go, and it is an incredibly difficult thing to do. So what I'm going to do now is pass over to Wally. I'm going to donate some of my time along uh, along the track here. But just to say that whilst I would recommend that you do all of this stuff, it's essential that Community Pharmacy does this to uh, improve our patient care and to make our job more worthwhile. It's not for the faint-hearted. Don't expect it's just going to happen. There's a hell of a lot of work to do. So with that, I'm going to pass over to Ollie.
5: Thank you, Mark. Um, So I'm just going to give a bit of an overview of what prescribing in the UK currently looks like. Um, so, currently in the UK, we have just over 14,000 independent prescribers, um, which is an excellent number. We've got pharmacists who are prescribing autonomously. So, within their competence, I think. So it's of the, how many? Ollie, just remind people there's 55,000 about 50,000 to 60,000 That's a, a very high percentage. Yeah, so it's a, it's a really good percentage. And we've got really good funding programs supporting that. So, I know a lot of the questions that you guys are having as business owners is where is the funding coming from? Uh, We're lucky in the UK, we've got higher education. England are funding 3,000 places this year. Um, And then from 2026, which I think is good because this takes the funding issue out. Um, All pharmacists will graduate as prescribers registered from day one. So you've suddenly then as business owners not thinking about where's the funding coming from. I guess an issue at the minute, is it owner funded? Is it funded by the pharmacist or are you going to have an external pool and i think that's obviously an important question as owners you're probably thinking about and one that um in the uk we we're quite lucky with because we've got a lot of funding but that's a good question to think about Um, moving on from that i think the prescribing qualification is just opening the door in the uk we have very structured postgraduate education around that which is provided for the center of postgraduate pharmacist education. So normally pharmacist prescribers, once they are qualified, they normally undergo a two year foundation program to develop competence in their area of studies. So this is another thing that you're probably thinking about as business owners. Obviously, if you fund the course, how are you backfilling time with workforce to make sure that you're getting the best out of your prescribers? Like Mark said, it's very easy to get all this going, but this needs to have scalability. So you need to get it right from the ground up. Another bit of overview, I think a lot of you Australians think in the UK, we're just in community pharmacy and we're prescribed, prescribed, prescribed. But unfortunately, as Mark said, we've not quite got the structure right yet. I would say over 95% of our prescribers are probably still in general practice, hospital or tertiary settings like substance misuse or mental health. Um, So don't look ourselves for all the answers, but we're still getting there. And with things like the World Pharmacy Council, shared learning is really important to get this right long term for the profession. Um, I think another thing that is uh, quite interesting is with professional autonomy comes greater risk. So obviously, it's high risk, high reward. So I think as business owners, you probably need to think about things like indemnity, personal and business, because when you introduce prescribing into your business, there is a higher risk for um, problems, unfortunately, but as we are risk averse professions, you know, the stats in England show that pharmacist prescribers are normally getting it right most of the time. Um, So I'll pass on to Zoe.
1: Um, I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to become one of the first pharmacist prescribers in the UK and that opportunity was in general practice at the time back in 2006 and we had to create what that model looked like and because of all the clinical governance, the structure, it was safer um, to practice in that setting but things have moved along and as Ollie and Mark, I've already alluded to, it's actually now the opportunity for community pharmacy in the UK because of the systems talking to each other, the documentation um, that hasn't really been set up yet. So we're trying to learn from pharmacists in general practice, but I can say 17 years down the track, we now have a network of pharmacist prescribers in every single part of the health economy so it's fantastic to be able to ring up your colleague in general practice or in community or in hospital and say, tell me a little bit more about what happened to this patient when they were with you. I am now fortunate enough to be working for the Guild. Um, I've come back home and am the Director for Practice Policy and Regulation. So I'm hoping I can help make this happen. I hear a lot of um, people that want this to happen in Australia and I'm here to support that. Um, I'm just going to show you sort of where we are state by state. Obviously, Queensland is leading with the um, UTI pilot, which Sarah's going to talk more to. Um, and we've actually got 350 people, I believe, enrolled um, to start the, the scope. So that's fantastic. We've also had um, New South Wales talking about um, the pilot that is going to be rolled out across scope of practice follow- Focusing on UTIs and oral contraceptive, which ACT is going to buddy up to as well. Um, Victoria as well. Uh, My concern is there's a lot of pilots happening. Um, I think with the pilots, we can have one. That would be ideal to have one and then we can roll it out across different states. The opportunities, we need to seize the opportunities. That's really important. Um, And I think it's great Western Australia uh, working towards hypertension. So that will be a different space. And actually, the only state or territory that has the legislation amended for us to be ready to prescribe is the Northern Territory. But then we have to think about what's the education and what does that look like in terms of enable this to happen? So I'll pass on to...
6: Just to let you know, I'm here more in my capacity as the project leader for the North Queensland Community Pharmacy Scope of Practice pilot. So it's not just UTI that um, is part of this pilot. It's actually been removed from the pilot because it is... Um, business as usual, standard practice now. So we've got, uh, instead of 23 conditions, we have uh, 22 conditions. Um, and I'm really excited to let you know that we have um, about 70% of the pharmacists in that North Queensland footprint um, enrolled to participate in the pilot. So we have 300 and almost 340 pharmacists um, have registered to participate in about 70% of the pharmacies in North Queensland. So that's a phenomenal number, and I think it speaks to how engaged and um, ready that the pharmacists are. This is it, this is the road right here. This is the beginning of the road. Um, it's a really exciting time to be a pharmacist in, in Australia to kind of get us across the line and catch up with the other countries. Um, Canadians are a bit of outliers, I guess, because when I did this... Uh, about 12 years ago, um, there was no training required. It was a two hour, here's your new responsibilities, here's what you're accountable for, um, check your insurance coverage, make sure you're covered, and away we went. So no training, so this is this is a bit of a new journey for me in that regard, um, and we were in, in community practice right away. So yeah, bit of a difference, but we'll get there.
7: Thank you, Cost. thank you everyone. In New South Wales, ethics approval is being finalised for the study project. Once approved, pharmacies that have expressed their interest will be contacted with the next steps. So far, the scheduled start dates are 1st of April for UTI trial and 1st of July for oral contraceptive. There will be no cap on the number of pharmacies participating in the trial. If you have not submitted an expression of interest, We strongly encourage you to do so, either via the Pharmacy Guild or the New South Wales Health Expression of Interest form. You do not need to complete them both. So,
0: So, so how many pharmacies, just for our colleagues, how many pharmacies in New South Wales, 1,570
7: or has it gone up, down? I can't remember. from Look, so far with the Expression of Interest, we've received close to 1,000. And there may potentially be some duplication in the expression of interest, but not, the numbers are definitely up there. Yeah. So let's talk about training. The Australasian College of Pharmacy will have an online training course available for participating pharmacists in the UTI trial. The module will become accessible once we have the green light from the University of Newcastle to go ahead. The premier and leader of the opposition have both committed in writing to implementing full scope of practice trials in three stages. So firstly, UTI trial. Secondly, renewal of oral contraceptive prescriptions by pharmacists. And thirdly, full scope of practice trial replicating the pilot up in Queensland, as mentioned by Sarah and a payment of $20 consultation fee to participating pharmacies in the trial, uh, in UTI and oral contraceptive trial. MedAdvisor will be used to record services under the trial and participating pharmacies will be contacted uh, with information if they don't already have the software. There's a lot of things happening at the present moment. So how do you stay informed? The Pharmacy Guild has a dedicated website. Uh, actually, cost next slide, that please. That, that one or the previous one. Yeah, right? so that's the one. Perfect. So as you can see, the pharmacy guild has a dedicated website. We can do more.org.au with detailed information on reforms, news update, and plenty more. So please stay engaged, stay informed. Thank you. Well, thank you everyone.
0: And thanks, everyone. Apologies, we haven't got chairs for everyone. We're going to drill into these. I'm going to start first by premises issues and get some insight. Um, Ollie and Mark have outlined that one of the weaknesses in the UK system, for those who've come in late, was we didn't have the infrastructure right through pharmacy. In hindsight, whether, whether you talk about some of the infrastructure in place, and Zoe, obviously, ex, ex, expertise in this area would be welcome. Um, let's talk about, we're going to drill first at the premises issues, premises related issues. That includes software and alike. So if I, I have none of this is Dorothy Dixon, so we, we were just saying I'd like to then drill down into pharmacist-related issues, and then, as Ollie was saying, uh, we're, we're eventually going to get to the day where it's embedded in the university course, so we're going to have to backfill all our pharmacists in terms of becoming bring, being brought up to speed. So let's start with some premises-related issues, and I, I'd love your input of the requirements also, Sarah, and Ollie if uh, and ben Johnson, if they've made those yet in New South Wales, let's talk about... So premises-related issues from software, premises, privacy rooms, consulting rooms, anything like that, please, guys.
4: Yes, uh, that's two of the things of my golden three, because IT or technology, uh, premises, and thirdly, workforce, which we're going to come on to. But in terms of the premises, I think people have an expectation that they're going to come to a clinical area. They're not going to be seen in some dusty old stock room at the back. Um, so we have to invest in consultation rooms, and yes, plural. So I uh, refitted a pharmacy just over a year ago, and there's four fully functional consultation rooms in there. I've got a nice little, neat little video if you want to see it. Uh, just catch me. I'll show you the, the little, uh, tour of it. So TAPS, I mean, I'm, I know I'm drilling down, but
0: these are massive infrastructure issues. Yeah. and. Yeah. At a time, normally our best time investment in pharmacy is the year we sign the agreement because people know they've got five years of investment certainty, but it's one thing if we need to bring plumbing in. So can you, I know it sounds pedantic, but let's drill right down into the infrastructure.
4: So it's good to have things like water and uh, sinks for hand washing. It just, if nothing else, it looks better to the patient when they come in and you've washed your hands rather than kind of, you know, clean up outside and then walk in and give them an injection. So it's just in terms of what people's expectations are. They want good quality premises with good lighting and just nice surrounds. And if you're charging for the service, it's vital that your premises are right on key. Because if they're not, people are going to think, well, it's a substandard service. We are competing here with other healthcare professionals. So we have to replicate the standards that they uh, will have in their clinics. So yeah, go and see how uh, doctors operate. How the clinics are set up and and just copy what they've got. That's that's probably the easiest way to do it. I brought in a, a professional uh pharmacy designer to help with our premises, knowing that um there was it was just so complicated. You know, there's not one specific thing that you can do, just even down to some of the uh the really nitty-gritty bits of having a sharps bin for all the 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 injectable waste, having a bin to put the hand-washing, you know, once you've washed your hands, put the towels in. It's the little things like that, and that takes quite a while to do. So is um, that
0: a best practice model or is any
4: of this in yeah. regulation or? No, nothing's in regulation in, in the UK, but you know, I think increasingly our regulator will want to see certain things in place when, uh, when they inspect a pharmacy. They'll wanna see that the equipment has been serviced, and on my slide I had, the last block was equipment. So as Cos said, you're going to be looking in ears a lot. Ears is probably the number one uh, presentation that we get. So you're going to be using that otoscope quite regularly. You've got to change the, uh, the specular, the little cap on the end. You've got to be replacing those. You've got to have the machine serviced. If you're taking blood pressures, it'll have to be a calibrated machine. Weights, the scales have got to be tested and... and uh, up to speed and all all of that side of things. So yeah, there's 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 quite a bit of investment. And this is why I said it's whilst you, we've got the regulation to do this, it's actually quite difficult to make it happen and it's quite expensive. It there's a, there's a heck of a lot of investment goes into it and you've got to take that leap of faith and say I'm going to be confident here, do it properly, not do a as we would say half-arsed job. We're going to do it properly and and plan it out. So in terms of planning the service, premises is probably one of the the easiest things to plan out because it's fairly obvious what you need if you're setting up the service. Going back some 20 years when I set up an INR, anticoagulant service for Warfarin, um, I made a gank chart on the wall at home. It was that detailed. And I looked at every possible aspect of the service and said, we're going to have to buy one of them. We're going to have to buy one of them. We're going to have to train that up. We're going to have to think about that. There was loads of aspects. So, because you're dead right. You've got to go down to the real granular uh, parts of the service.
0: Okay. So, do you want to add anything? Let's do the premises, and maybe I'll ask you, um, Sarah, Have they in Queensland, have we got to that level? You're the most detailed in government negotiations, so we'll cover that. Uh Do you you want to add anything from the UK perspective, and then I'll go to you, Sarah.
1: Just from an IT perspective, you know, the opportunity was in general practice because general practice had the system set up so I could access all the pathology. I could order pathology. I could see the diagnoses, the consultation notes. It was the IT that allowed the hospital discharges to come through. I could see everything that had happened to the patient in a community setting. So you do need that. That IT is essential. Um, Those of you that came to the morning session around scope of practice, you know pharmacists were saying you need 14 screens up at the moment to do a vaccination add scope of practice to that you know you're going to be having 22 25 screens up and it's not going to be workable if the IT isn't interoperable with everything else going on in the health economy
0: and it's one thing the screens the other thing the guild is thinking clever uh, importantly is some of your consult rooms if it's not a web-based system you know cabling to that part of the pharmacy where the consult room is a major issue so So they're the things that we eventually have to get to cloud-based systems, which make life easier. And that will allow us then for the next transition in life as clinical pharmacists, the off-site clinical services. Does everyone understand what we're referring to? So cabling is a major issue for doctors' practices. The the biggest issue is obviously in the rollout, 3,700 pharmacies are in broad-based groups. So we want to get to these groups. The Guild wants to get these pharmacy groups quickly so we can give guidance to them on these consult rooms because we have to be three or four years ahead in terms of what are the premises requirements so that if you're with AMCAL or Guardian or Terry White Chem they're planning their consult rooms with all the issues that Mark was referring to. Sorry to interrupt, we'll keep going. Uh,
6: Yeah, I guess in terms of software, um, as it relates to the pilot, uh, we are committed to making a bespoke clinical program. It will be a way to record the clinical interaction. Um, and because of timing, unfortunately, we won't be able to get it. Um, there's no API available between the different softwares because it's just not realistic in that short a time frame. But when it becomes business as usual, I would be challenging all of the software vendors to make it integrated so that it is all one system. Um, so the software requirements for North Queensland, it will be a bespoke software model, as Cos mentioned, big investment. Um, to make sure that we capture the right data for the evaluators of the pilot. Um, And in terms of uh, consultation room, obviously, it's a requirement to have a consultation room. And to Mark's point, it needs to look like a professional room. And I know with some of the vaccination services... Um, it has challenged some of the older pharmacies that may not have a consultation room. And, you know, they've been able to kind of erect a makeshift one with screens. And I've seen shower curtains, you know, hanging, etc. Um, I would probably challenge that in terms of these clinical services, because you are taking it to the next level. It's not a matter of giving a, an injection, you know, or a, a needle in someone's arm and and be the end of it. You're You're expected to have pretty, you know, conversations that could be a little bit awkward a little bit difficult and and people need to be assured that it's going to be private and it's confidential confidential so um, the same standards as a doctor right in a, in a clinic room so
0: so in, we've been, had a lot of questions in the queensland pilot whether when eventually dovetails into quality care I think we will be try our best that we have set some best practice guidelines we won't dovetail it initially into quality care because some of these some of these premises requirements will evolve over time and we're still obviously scoping the rest of the world and best practice in that scenario. But one of the issues, maybe you could talk to the guys. So just what we were talking about, there's no interoperability of the software short term, because I know that's your frustration, but clearly that is a major pro a multi-hundred thousand dollar project in itself. And then we're also saying there, so I'll jump in, Mark.
4: Yeah, just to say on the interoperability piece that that is really vital to us so we were expecting a national oral contraceptive service to come in the UK that was supposed to launch middle of January just gone but it was delayed because we refused to go ahead until the API was in place to enable the payments to enable the it's a complicated service so there's lots of data to record blood pressures bmis you know all the advice that's been given so we stopped it on the basis that there was no api so, so let's, until the api is you. there and the it is ready we're not going ahead so it's that essential
0: let's try and wrap up uh, we can come back though, but i'm trying to wrap up premises issues anyone else want to make any comment on premises related issues we'll go to ollie and yeah Sarah.
5: i just wanted to add in the uk um we have a system called pinnacle um so which i think is really important because when you're using pinnacle the back end of that drops all your consultation notes directly into GP records. And I think that should be the ambition. You need to work collaboratively. It's ideal that you have your own audible notes in sight. But if you can have those notes instantly go over once the consultation yeah. is finished, then GPs are informed of the same thing. Other healthcare professionals know what the plan is and know what treatment's been administered. So I think that's really important to keep continuity of care.
6: All right, Sarah, Well, then we're oh, just going to quickly make the comment that Down the road, definitely need to look at that. But for the purpose of the pilot, we are actually evaluating the clinical service and not the dispensing part of it. So we are 100% keeping the clinical service separate from the dispense. So at this point, there isn't necessarily a need for that integration. Yes, it will be great to have that down the road, but for the purpose of the pilot and evaluating it, we are evaluating the clinical service.
0: So we will get patients presenting in Queensland and New South Wales. That in code after the minister just announced yesterday, there's no money for the My Health Record. This is not dovetailed in the My Health Record initially. So let's just jump straight into the training because a lot of pharmacists have expressed. Just spell out the course in terms of what the on-site training that unis are providing, and just we'll, and then we'll go to the UK and give some outline to what your training requirements were. So I think this is important, Sarah, that we spell out the weeks and, and so sure. let's go ahead.
6: So we have two major um, players, I guess, if you will, in this. There's QUT are developing two modules, one on safe prescribing, one on the quality use of medicines. That's about 13 weeks in duration and involves 120 hours of learning and practice or practical training. So each pharmacist will develop their own training plan um, and have that evaluated by the university then there is the jcu so james cook university is going to deliver the clinical um the clinical background on the 22 conditions so for the majority of that it will be refresher for everyone um, because we're all really very very aware of treatment guidelines for gourd for example right we don't need a huge module on gourd um, but things like the ot- use of an otoscope that will be all new for most of us so JCU is delivering that, and that's over 20 weeks. They've broken it down into two, um, two, I guess, modules.
0: Um, so and- tw- 20 weeks, because I know we're typical pharmacists, we want to know how many contact hours, how much study. So just give a ballpark. Is a pharmacist devoting four hours a week to that or two hours? just.
6: It's you- probably estimated to be about three to five weeks. It's three to five weeks. Three to five hours a week. So it's going to depend on the person too. So So
0: no one will be able to watch maths while this is on, you know, I'm just saying. Yeah. All right. So in terms then of that concentrated weekend, so the otoscope, can you, because I know that this, just to give you a sense of the politics, what do we end end up coming down to in terms of the specific otoscope training?
6: Well, right now, as of current, at this moment, it looks like it's about two days of on-campus residentials twice so there's four days of on-campus residentials which will go through all the diagnostic aspects of the various point of care products.
0: Okay so we're talking about the uh, um, Johnson is there anything we got to that level discussion because obviously uh, now big okay that's all right Zoe have you got anything to comment on this in terms?
1: Yeah so in the UK when this first started it was 84 contact hours with a designated mentor practitioner which was a GP or a specialist it was nine months of training at university, postgraduate, and there was also 12 weeks of every single body system. So, one was the year um, We had to learn respiratory, cardiovascular, GI. One week, um, very intense weeks. Um, we were told as well it'd be three to five weeks. The reality was it was three to um, sorry three to five hours of training a week. Um, my husband has never seen me so stressed. I was studying four, five, six hours a day on top of working full-time. I was the first one. I had a lot to prove to myself and to other people. And I think um, the reality was it it took up a lot of my time. But I'm very um, thankful that I was mentored and supported by an incredible GP to allow me to do that. And actually, the biggest compliment was when I was told I was less black and white as a pharmacist and more grey that meant that I had had moved my mindset to actually training in a different way. So in the UK, it was very different. Ollie's sort of the most recent one. It's changed again, hasn't it?
5: Yeah, it has. So uh, when I completed it, I think it was approximately two years ago at the University of West England. Um, it was during COVID. So it was 14 contact days. Um, and then you had to develop a portfolio of 90 hours with your designated medical professional, which has moved on from when Zoe done it, it can be pharmacists now as well, which is obviously opens the door for pharmacists to mentor pharmacists because you know what areas you need the attention in to to develop your skill set. Um, so that's where it's at currently. I think the course runs six to nine months. You based on that's the time limit you get to complete your portfolio. The very understanding that obviously we're all working full-time jobs. So developing a portfolio is going to be slightly different for everyone who's undertaking that training. So we've only got nine minutes
0: left. So I just want to. say, I mean, obviously we could talk for hours, as you all know. But I'm just trying to cover all, all all the key areas. Obviously, in the in the therapy, Sarah, the most common question I get is each of those therapeutic areas, almost like the uh, wonderful work that Lisa did with UTIs, where we had a fixed protocol. Are there fixed protocols with each of those medications, especially if they're prescription medications that the pharmacist is prescribing? Can you give a bit of an outline so people start getting a sense of It is full scope of practice, but there's still a limited scope of what we can do within that framework. So can you cover
6: that, please? Um, There's 17 common everyday conditions. Um, We called them minor ailments because the reality is they are relatively minor in nature. Um, We would never say that to a patient. But when we look at that list of um, conditions, there's nothing there that would be considered you know, when you hear the docs talking about how people are going to die and it's a dangerous experiment, et cetera. These are patients that you're already seeing at your counter. It's just opening up what you can prescribe for them. So those 17 conditions, it's autonomous prescribing. So you get to choose the product that you think most appropriate for the patient based on your clinical assessment, obviously based on recognized and accepted therapeutic guidelines. And then there's five chronic conditions. Those ones are more about symptom Um, symptom management, and um, cardiovascular disease reduction. So cardiovascular risk um, with diabetes and hyperlipidemia or dyslipidemia and hypertension. So you're going to help them with their disease. Um, And then asthma and COPD, you're going to help them with their symptoms. So those ones are more structured in nature, more like UTI. So there'll be algorithms that you follow based on their symptoms. But the other ones are truly autonomous.
0: While you've got the mic, because we've only got five minutes left, can we now jump quickly into remuneration? Obviously, being a pilot, the government is quite firm about the funding of what consumer pays. But maybe when we go to the other end of the, uh, of the panel, you know, funding in terms of uh, patients' outcomes or private health insurers, Ollie uh, or alike, well, be with the, I'm sure our audience would be very interested in that. So, Stara, can you kick off in Queensland? And maybe, Johnson, you just remind people of what the New South Wales government has already outlined in the payment model.
6: Yeah, very quickly, unfortunately, this one will be patient-funded, um, short, standard, long consult, depending on how long the pharmacist spends. It will mirror what the docs are paid by, um, by the government. Unfortunately, we're not at a place where we're going to get that payment, much like New South Wales that are going to get it. Um, it's disappointing, but that's where we're at. Um, the PBS, the the drugs will not be covered by PBS, so that will also be patient-funded, but a part of this pilot is we are going to capture when somebody was not able to avail themselves of the service or of the product because of price. So we are going to capture that data and that will give us some good, um, good traction, good leverage with the governments to go back and say, hey, we could have made a difference here. Here's what the savings would have been to the healthcare care system um, and here's what the cost would have been. The patient couldn't pay it, et cetera. So, I'll,
0: I'll jump to Johnson and then we'll ask our colleagues about the remuneration in the UK.
7: So in New South Wales, there will be a payment of $20 consultation fee to participating pharmacies in the UTI and oral contraceptive trial.
0: And then the more expanded as you follow Queensland, undetermined yet, Johnson? Undetermined. Yet. All right, let's go UK. Well, how, are you getting, how are you getting paid?
4: So most of my prescribing in uh, in the community pharmacy is private. So the, the, the person pays when they come in. Um, you know, if I'm prescribing in general practice, that's that's the same as what the doctors do. So there's no payment as such for doing it. It's, a, it's kind of a broader service, really. Um, moving forwards, we have 3,000 places open to, to uh, pharmacists to become prescribers. I think Ollie mentioned that earlier, that will be brilliant. Uh, it's opening the door. And we have every area of England potentially participating in a pilot where uh, all com- well certain community pharmacies can uh, prescribe at the NHS cost so it would be providing the service at a fee yet to be determined and the medicines free or at a small charge to the uh, to the patient at the end of it
5: i think there's another interesting pilot going on in Scotland called pharmacy first plus which is a very different model of funding this sort of service so pharmacies are remunerated a baseline cost of £2,000 a month on the basis that they provide 25 hours minimum of prescriber cover. So they'll get that money, whether they see zero patients or 100 patients, the scripts will also flow through the pharmacy. So that's a very different model of doing it. You're being paid to provide the service regardless of the amount of uptake. Um, And that's still ongoing at the minute. Zoe, do you
0: want to add or Mark? And then I've just got one final question as we wrap.
1: That's $3,600 for the Aussie audience, roughly a month. Um, in general practice, people accessed me for free. Um, it's free at the uh, patient contact point. So, again, different. But um, as Marcus said, in community pharmacy, that model's just starting off, but that it's hopefully it would mirror what's already happening out there.
4: So, go ahead. From a business point of view, the, the potential for private stuff is massive. So people will pay for things that aren't available. So I, I do travel vaccines and I do loads of yellow fevers because nobody else is doing them. All the docs have packed it in and all the travel clinics are, are booked up or not available, whatever. Um, people will buy things like some of the diabetic drugs. And I know that you've had problems getting hold of one of the injectables recently. Um, and when we go, V comes, which is the the um, the new uh, drug. Weight loss? I'll be prescribing that privately, and I know that people will pay several hundred pounds because they're already coming to us for Saxenda. So, that you know, there is a big market there. Some of my colleagues do, and not me, obviously, uh, aesthetics, and they're prescribing Botox and fillers and things like that. Um, I haven't had that uh, service done yet. But... You've had it? Maybe I need it.
0: So we've only got two minutes left. I'm just going to ask our colleagues... If there was one or two elements of success, if we're three years down the track, Mark, I'll start with you.
4: So yeah, three things, um, technology, IT, workforce and premises. They, for me, that's what kind of my KPIs, that's what I tell my teams, Um, they are the focus. The profit that you make at the the end is an output of that. Uh, We're not basing it on profit, that just sort of follows that we, uh, we get there.
2: I hope you got a lot out of the panel discussion that we just heard today. There is so much information there to help you consider how to prepare your business for the introduction of new services in pharmacy as they occur. And we very much look forward to bringing you a great episode next time with the winner of the Pharmacy Assistant of the Year Award, Colby Deek from Harvey Bay in Queensland. And remember to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. And if you have a great idea for a show or a guest, we would love to hear from you. So please get in contact. Until next time, I've been your host, Daniel Oyston, and you've been listening to episode 131 of the PBCN podcast
1: the PBCN podcast, supporting your journey every step of the way. For more resources, to access support or advice, or to view this episode's show notes, visit guild.org.au.